Good morning. Lisa said that we're free to worship. And that while that's true, it doesn't automatically guarantee that it's an easy walk with Christ. And that's very much an angle that I hope you'll draw from what I share this morning. Now today's uh, message comes in two parts. Pay attention to part one. After that, you're on your own. Make of it what you will. And part one is our reading. That's really all that counts. So if you get lost, go back to 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to read most of 1 John chapter 5 from the J.B. Phillips translation. Everyone who really believes that Jesus is the Christ proves himself one of God's family. The man who loves the Father cannot help loving the Father's own Son. The test of the genuineness of our love for God's family lies in this question. Do we love God himself and do we obey his commands? For loving God means obeying his commands and these commands of his are not burdensome. For God's heredity within us will always conquer the world outside us. In fact, this faith of ours is the only way in which the world has been conquered. For who could ever be said to conquer the world in the true sense except the man who really believes that Jesus is God's Son. Jesus Christ himself is the one who came by water and by blood. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. The Spirit bears witness to this, for the Spirit is the truth. The witness, therefore, is a triple one. The Spirit in our own hearts, the signs of the waters of baptism, and the blood of atonement. And they all say the same thing. If we're prepared to accept human testimony, God's own testimony concerning his own son is surely infinitely more valuable. The man who really believes in, in the Son of God will find God's testimony in his own heart. The man who will not believe God is making him, that is God, uh, to be a liar because he is deliberately refusing to accept the testimony that God has given concerning his own son. This is that God has given men eternal life. And this real life is to be found only in his son. It follows naturally that any man who has genuine contact with Christ has this life. And if he has not, then he does not possess this life at all. I have written like this to you who already believe in the name of God's Son, so that you may be quite sure that here and now you possess eternal life. We know that the true child of God 
does not sin. He is in the, in, in the charge of God's own son and the evil one must keep his distance. We know that we ourselves are children of God and we also know that the world around us is under the power of the evil one. We know too that the Son of God has actually come to this world and has shown us the way to know the one who is true. We know that our real life is in the true one and in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the real God and this is real eternal life. But be on your guard, my dear children, against every false god. This is the last uh, in five readings that we've had in 1 John. I'm looking at uh, 1 John chapter 5 and I guess I'm tail end Charlie looking to wrap this one up. Now, depending on when you think this epistle was written and perhaps even in what order John wrote his three epistles or letters and there is some disagreement amongst scholars as to the order and timing of those things but depending on your view on that matter the reality is that the last penned words in the Bibles that we have could well be 1 John 5.21 Keep yourselves from idols. It's a different ending to all of the letters in the, um, in the New Testament, the apostolic letters. Uh, and there's no doubt that if it was the last letter that, uh, that John wrote to his beloved friends, he certainly would have wanted to have left them with a challenge and an impact that somehow or other drew together a whole range of threads that he'd already uh, talked about. John has spoken to his beloved friends, given them his reassurance as an apostle, as an elder, as likely one of the last, perhaps the last, uh, person on earth to have walked with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. John was an eyewitness to Jesus' life. And now John is an old man looking back on many years of rich and varied Christian experiences. So we'd expect what he said at the end there to be pretty significant and to carry some weight of uh, authority and reality worthy of substantial respect. In his letter, John repeated to his beloved friends the essence of the gospel truth in the face of confusion and lies to steady their hearts and build them up for joyous and fruitful living and for intimacy with God as Father for which John majors in truth, light and love. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preaching in London in the 60s and 70s, uh, said uh, in relation to um, 1 John in particular, that the teaching of this letter, and indeed the whole of the New Testament, is not a program of world improvement, nor is it a program of world renunciation. No, it gives us a picture of this kind of position 
in which we find ourselves. With this opposing spiritual force, the spiritual power that is represented by the world. Our fight is with that. And we are taught in this epistle that we can conquer it. We can rise above it and we can defeat it in spite of everything that is so true of it. In spite of the dangers that beset us on all sides, we can triumph and we can prevail. We can indeed be more than conquerors. And 1 John 1, going back to the, uh, the first um, reading that we had in 1 John, which in fact I think was the, the, the last Sunday in December. And that chapter gives us an insight into the nature of our intimacy with God as Father. Think for a moment. What might be an opposite to intimacy or union with God? Well, for the purposes of this morning, I put it to you that it is in fact idolatry and that intimacy and idolatry are mutually exclusive. And there may be others that you can think of. Now, if that's true, and those introductory remarks I gave you are true, then in fact, chapter 5 and verse 21 may be an amazing climax to this final letter of John's. Or it could be some indolent end piece. It's certainly different to the other apostolic letters. And at its simplest, idolatry is when God is no longer first in all things. And it may be the greatest obstruction in our lives, in our experience, to spiritual maturity. We will never enter into the lofty truths of John's epistle if idolatry creeps into our lives and possibly even rules, in part at least, from time to time. But before giving at least a brief consideration to what John uh, wrote about idolatry, I want to draw to your attention using just three very short passages from the Old Testament what God has to say about idolatry. Now let's start with Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. We're all familiar with that. It's a well-known, well-trodden, uh, well-known passage, well-trodden path. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment two, you shall not have or make idols. Jeremiah chapter 2. If you want to know more about what God thinks of idols, read the whole chapter of Jeremiah uh, 2. It's, um, it's, it's very insightful. <clears throat> but 2 verse 5 says, What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And then in verse 11 and 12, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own systems, broken systems that cannot hold water. Read Jeremiah chapter 2, you'll find idolatry is not pretty. Now while it may appear to be a final, almost throwaway line, in telling his friends 
to keep themselves from idols, John directs us all to the essence of this letter, in which he gives us all the answers to two fundamental and primary questions that are absolutely at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the kingdom of God. Who is Jesus? And was the death of Christ enough? What is the point of arguing over things such as, let's pick on one subject, same-sex marriage, when we can't even get agreement on two fundamental issues? Because who is Jesus and was the death of Christ enough? I just enjoy turning any difficult conversation around to two fundamental uh, issues at that point. And John assures us that Jesus is the Son of God and yes, Christ died for the sins of the whole world of which we are a part. Nobody goes to hell because they're not forgiven. They go to hell because they didn't believe in the Son of God. In spite of every difficulty, controversy and contradiction, we are challenged to hold true to this apostolic testimony. And if we know him, we have eternal life, which as far as we're able to tell, certainly as far as I'm able to tell uh, and understand, is not something yet to come, but is something that we actually embrace and have and experience now. Jesus in, in John 17 verse 3, when praying for his disciples, said, um, this is eternal life, that they should know thee, the only true God, and him whom you have sent. Now, if that's true of me today, or true of you, we are already embarked on eternal life. And as to this life in Christ, John warns us. Now, John, in many times in his letters, he warns his, his, his readers and he tells us to be beware of antichrists and false teachers and false doctrine and those who make great claims about the kingdom of God, things in theory with no substance in practice. Those who say they love God, yet hate their brother. And John is not expounding religious theory, that is, only a knowledge of the truth. This letter is essentially practical to help people like us in our daily lives and in our battles against the forces arranged against us in this world. In 1 John 5 verse 20, John asserts that we know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and it is eternal life. Now this is the positive aspect of truth and hope but John goes on to say in the very next verse, verse 21, that final verse of the chapter, that if we want to continue, uh, continually be sure about these things and experience the fullness of this truth and those relationships with the Father and the Son, allowing them to change us and direct our lives, then we must keep ourselves from idols. That would be the New King James. Or the Passion says, guard yourselves from worshipping anything but him, and the new living, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. There are many things constantly in this life, in the world, which threaten to come between us and a true knowledge of God and God himself. And like it or not, we're all engaged in spiritual warfare, 
a fight of faith every day that we live here on earth. And there is an enemy, a clearly defined enemy, evil one, the devil, and the purpose of uh, our enemy, he's really only got one purpose as far as we as Christians are concerned, it is to come between us and God. Everything else is subsidiary, everything else is effective, coming between us and God, coming between us and this knowledge, this revelation, coming between us and this life in Christ. How? By getting us to fix our minds, our thinking, our attention, our hearts on anything other than God himself and the other thing really doesn't matter what it is. The great Apostle Paul gives us an example of active faith on the road. He sets our daily course in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I do not consider, this is Paul, the great Apostle writing, I do not consider myself to have already arrived spiritually, nor do I consider myself already perfect. But I keep going on, grasping ever more firmly that purpose for which Christ grasped me. I concentrate on this. I leave the past behind and with hands outstretched to whatever lies ahead, I go straight for the goal. My reward, the honour of being called of God in Christ. And with that in mind, I want to put to you three propositions this morning. The first one is that the greatest enemy that confronts us in the spiritual life is the worshipping of idols. No, don't, don't, don't walk out. But that's my first proposition to you this morning. The greatest present danger is not so much deeds as idolatry. When challenged as to the most important commandment, in, uh, Jesus didn't say something very specific like, thou shalt not steal. Or when I heard the other day that somebody was getting 100 uh, megabits on their broadband internet connection, I realized that that might mean thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's broadband. Um, but uh, he, he gave us an all-embracing, an underpinning command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus was giving primacy to the first two of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods but me, and you shall not have idols. If we get that right, loving God with everything we have, then all the other stuff will fall into place. Anything in our lives that takes priority over our love for God, our obedience, our attentiveness to God, is idolatry. And when we perhaps just expand outside what it actually means to have no other gods or to have, to not make an idol, I think the Passion Translation of Matthew 22 um, helps us uh, very much at that point. Love the Lord your God with every passion in your heart, with all the energy of your being, and with every thought that is within you. This is the great and supreme commandment. What idols can we establish? Well, an idol can be defined most simply as anything in our lives that occupies the place that is meant to be occupied by God alone. 
anything that holds my life, my devotion, my attention, my energies, anything on which I depend, anything uh, that holds a controlling position in my life, could easily, I'm not saying it is, could easily constitute an idol. The heresy of which the church accused Galileo in 1633 AD, which today, of course, to us, us seems a complete nonsense, um, was Galileo's view that the earth revolved around the sun rather than the sun, rather than the earth being the center of the universe. One of today's great heresies uh, is that I am the center of my world and I can do with impunity whatever I like. This is a supreme form of idolatry and great folly. Interestingly, another aspect of idolatry can be that we actually have false notions of God. As did the renegade mob John was cautioning his hearers about. Those antichrists have been denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. They've been denying that he was the Son of God. Uh, And therefore, John says, well, if you claim that, and if your idea of God is not apostolic, you have a false conception of him, ergo, you've made an idol, and that's what you're worshipping, and it's rubbish. (coughs) We might even create idols in our church, in our fellowship. We might worship our religion or local church instead of God, a world of observances rather than righteous relationships. We may pursue good theology and, for example, we may love the doctrine of atonement, yet marginalize the one who died. The list is limited only by your imagination. Two, we must guard actively against idolatry. Idolatry is insidious. It's hard work (laughs) keeping it at bay. But John insists, keep yourselves from idols. We must take care not to put ourselves or things or ideas in the place of God. And this isn't just a case of saying, oh, let go and let God fix it all. We must act. We must resist. We must constantly choose the path that brings honour to our Heavenly Father. Paul in Philippians 2 said, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Not work because Christ's death was insufficient, but rather work out what it means daily to live Christianly in the 21st century. As we wrestle with this issue, we find the same idea in many places in the Old Testament. And I'll just produce one. For example, a Proverbs reflects a similar sentiment. He said, it says, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23. And today, more than really any other generation, there are far too many voices clamoring for our attention, our time, our talents, our assets. Many are unrighteous voices and must be resisted. I must guard myself. I must guard my thinking and my understanding. I must watch my spirit and my heart. And we can usefully do that together. Idolatry, independence from God, is the central temptation. Always has been. Was there slap bang in the middle? The Garden of Eden. I must constantly watch and pray and always and ever 
be on my guard because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. How guard against idolatry? Well, we're challenged to live no longer for ourselves but for him who died and rose again. 2 Corinthians 5. We're in the world, but not of the world. And the world hates us, just like it hated Jesus. And when Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, he didn't didn't pray that Father would take them out of the world, but that he would keep them from the evil one. And so in guarding, uh, we need to first of all remember who we are, the truth about ourselves. We are God's people, purchased by Christ with blood. Remember our destiny, the life we're called to live, the context of this life. We are a God, even though the whole world lies in the wicked one. In other words, if we are of God and belong to God, then we must live for God and not for those other things. And so earlier in John 1, John 2, John says, love not the world. Use by all means, but don't abuse the many resources and giftings which we have and we share in God. Do them for his glory and not for self-gratification, or as John Bunyan put it in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, not for vain glory. We also need to remember the true nature of idols, and we can get some insight into that from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where we discover from Paul's teaching that it's not the idol that counts, but the power behind it, which is satanic. So look with with care at the things to which we tend to give our worship and our adoration. Kingdom things? Are our motives kingdom motives? What brings us undone? Well, it may not be the object itself which is wicked, but rather the way we use it or relate to it and the power and control we give it over our own lives. Remember the truth about God and live in communion with him, which surely is the purpose of our gatherings, great and small, to stimulate one another, to spur one another on to love and good deeds, encouraging one another as we see the day of Christ's return drawing near. Hebrews 10. Whenever we're tempted to engage in idolatry, to sideline God, let us think again of the nature and the being of God. Let us remember that the privilege offered to us is to worship him and to walk with him, to know him as father and to live as a child of God. It is, as we realise, the wondrous possibility of knowing God that everything else should pale into insignificance. Strive, contend without ceasing to realise the presence and fellowship and communion of God. Learn to appreciate his nearness and his presence. To realise his companionship. To know that we are with him and into him and in him and see to it always that nothing and no one shall ever come between us and him. To keep John's final instruction, we need the guidance and encouragement of the whole of his letter that we've been looking at now for five sessions. Little children, guard yourselves from idols.
in his final instructions, I think John is inviting us to take a reflective on the whole of the letter. John challenges us to actively guard against idolatry, rejecting those things which could so easily come between us and our Heavenly Father. John dares us to remember who we really are in Christ as the redeemed, reformed children of God. And John invites us to know ever more deeply our eternal God and Heavenly Father, who is light and truth and love.